Okay, we're on. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins from Silicon Valley in California and a return to the headquarters of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm Richard Hollingham and we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and we have a bit of a space alien special. I'll be heading to Australia to hear about Breakthrough Listen. That's the ongoing initiative to get ET on the phone. I'll also be talking to two of the leading scientists on the Cassini mission about its dive into Saturn and the likelihood of life elsewhere in the solar system. I'm abandoning that first love and going after this other one who has shown me everything that I wanted to see, seduction at the highest level. With me is Seth Shostak, SETI's chief astronomer and author of Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Um, I love the name of that because it sort of reminds me of those 1970s soft porn films in the UK, Confessions of a Milkman. And the like. I didn't happen to see that one, but uh, if it increased sales of the books, I'm happy for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're recording Space Boffins in the studios of Big Picture Science, uh, the excellent radio show produced by SETI. Uh, So still no aliens then? No, 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 no. People ask me that uh, frequently at parties, Richard, to the extent I get invited to parties. And uh, I always find it a remarkable question because clearly if we had found the aliens, you would know about it. Now, you are, I should say, a scientific organization. You're based in science. You are a scientist. And one of the other things you do, it's not just the intelligent aliens. Okay, that's what's on the sign. But you know, astrobiology, looking for the bugs that might be not so far away. Exactly. Uh, Pond scum in the solar system. Uh, It's not generally appreciated, the SETI Institute, because of its name. It is, of course, associated with looking for intelligent life. And that's all it did 20 years ago. But today, 97%, I think, of the scientists in the halls outside this studio are looking for life here in the solar system or concerned with life in the solar system. So the search for intelligent life is a a small fraction of the effort here. And I suppose you could say, well, that's because partly the funding uh, situation, but also the fact that less intelligent life is probably much more uh, widespread than intelligent life, something you can prove to yourself by walking around the neighborhood. (laughs) And we'll be talking about Enceladus, Mars, all these potential sites of life in the solar system uh, later on. But Enceladus is the new number one. If you're going to draw up a chart of where life could be in the solar system, I think Enceladus looks like the the moon of Saturn looks like it's bumped up there. Well, it has. You know, it has an underground ocean, if you will. I mean, there's water on the inside of this icy moon of Saturn. Uh, But the nifty thing is that sometimes that ice, of course, shoots out into space, which makes it relatively easy to get a sample by sending a spacecraft that doesn't have to land on this moon, drill very deep holes and, you know, fish something out from underneath that. You can just grab it in space, bring it back to Earth, look at it under a microscope. Maybe you see something wiggling. 
Well, in an increasingly desperate effort to escape the British winter, I've been spending as much time as possible in sunnier parts of the world, uh, hence the trip to, uh, to California right now. But just before Christmas, I was in Australia, where I took the opportunity to visit the 64-metre-wide Parks Radio Telescope in New South Wales. Now, it famously relayed the pictures of the first moon landing in 1969, immortalised in the film The Dish. And you might have heard the feature I recorded for the BBC. Well, as well as being used for astronomy, the telescope's been scanning the skies for signals from extraterrestrials. It's part of a project called Breakthrough Listen, which is backed by the lights of Stephen Hawking, Frank Drake and billionaire venture capitalist Yuri Milner. It's the biggest search ever undertaken, scanning ten times more of the universe, a hundred times faster, they claim. Well, operations scientist at the Parkes Telescope, John Sarkissian, showed me round the control room. We'll go up on the, the stairs here, and as you come up, for many many people who have seen the film The Dish, you look very familiar to them. <laughs> we have racks and racks of equipment, and and you can probably hear the, the cooling fans now, and that's because we have so much equipment here, we have to cool it all, otherwise the equipment will begin to fail and, and not operate as, as well as we'd, we'd like. So, so you've got racks and racks of, yeah. of computers here. Disappointing, no big control console with a giant big button or some big wheel to turn or anything like that. That's right. In, when it was first, but we did have a control desk here that resembled something out of the Thunderbirds, you know, uh, with dials and globes. It looked really cool. I really loved that. Unfortunately, you know, um, technology improved. And so in 1982, that old control desk was decommissioned and a new computerised desk was installed with uh, really advanced computers, and we actually still have one here. Um, it actually drives... Which looks ancient now. It does, you know, but we have upgraded. We've put this little Apple sticker on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we still, it still drives a telescope because uh, the computer doesn't have an operating system, so um, it doesn't crash. <laughs> it's very, very stable, very reliable. So we have uh, the attitude, if it's not broken, don't fix it, leave it. It works beautifully, and um, it's been going now for, what, 30, 34 years Um and it's, it still still does what we want it to do, so we leave it. Okay, over here we have four shielded racks, and you can see in, in one of these racks, I'll open it up. So they look really like giant freezers, and actually they, when you open them up, they feel a bit like giant freezers. It's, it's really quite cold in here. That's right, but here we have the little, the, the initial block of computers to sift through as much data as they possibly can. Looking I mean, through. that's the challenge, isn't it? You can point a telescope at the sky, get this massive information, and it's the, inter- it's the making sense of it, and then the interpretation. That's right. It's not enough just to be able to, to collect the data. You have to have it accessible somehow, too, you know. So the amount of data we'll be collecting will be phenomenal, you know. Um, each day we'll be collecting many terabytes of data. It's not just the storage that's an issue with such vast quantities of data. How do you make sense of it all? Well, the answer comes from the gaming community. As director of the Breakthrough Programme, John Reynolds explains. The technology that we're using in the search at Parks is built around something called a GPU, which is a graphics processing unit. Now, this is the technology that lets uh, gamers have fun. Uh, it renders uh, images really quickly on screens for your teenagers and uh, well, yourself if you play. And it's this technology which has really revolutionised uh, computer processing in the scientific domain in the last few years. This allows us to search for signals of a complex nature which we weren't able to search for before. And it makes us much more sensitive to finding uh, you know, the right signal out there. 
In what way? I mean, if you're talking about the you know, advanced graphics technology that lets you shoot space aliens, how is that applied to looking for space aliens? It depends what the signal you're looking for is. In the simplest um, possible scenario, you might be looking for a pure tone, like a tuning fork. And if that's the simplest signal you want to find, you don't probably need a huge amount of processing power. But if, for example, you're looking for an accidental signal, which is coming from a distant planet, a signal which isn't intended to be received, you might say, well, what kind of signals would be visible from Earth? And one, for example, might be a GPS satellite signal. Now, that's actually quite a complex signal. So to find that requires a lot of processing. It doesn't just pop out in a simple display. You actually have to crunch the numbers quite hard. So that's where we have, we think, a really, really critical edge. So if you think about the Earth, we've been beaming out TV signals, radio signals. We've got all these GPS signals, satellite signals. And so what you're doing is listening for an alien civilization, perhaps doing a similar thing to what we're doing, the sort of similar radio waves that we're sticking out there. Exactly. That's the sort of thing we're looking for. And where are you looking? Is this being targeted? Yeah, very much. So a lot of thought's gone into uh, where we look. Uh, It's it's a combination of different um, sets of targets. And also on top of that, there's there's a blind search along the the Milky Way because uh, there's always a possibility it'll come from an unexpected source. So the targeted um, searches include things like the nearest stars. There's also uh, a search of some of the nearest galaxies. Now, these are a long way away, and you'd have to be an incredibly advanced civilization to transmit something from that distance. But that's what we're looking for. It's quite likely that um, any detection that we find will be from a civilization which is way more advanced than us in terms of uh, technology. And how long does this go on for? Does there come a point where you either keep upgrading or you say, there's nothing there? Eventually we will find it. And, uh, I mean, there's no greater authority possibly than Stephen Hawking who said, in an infinite universe, there must be other life and there's no more important question than finding it. I mean, there's not much question that um, we're not alone in the universe and if we look hard enough, we'll find it. It's simply a question of when. John Reynolds from the Australian Government Research Organisation, CSIRO. I'll put the uh, pictures of the Parkes Telescope on our Facebook page and uh, there's some really great retro computing pictures there as as well. Seth, uh, do you share that view? It's not a question of, uh, of if, but, but when we find extraterrestrial civilizations. Well, I, I do share that view. I do think they're out there. I don't think I would be quite as uh, strong in my statement. I wouldn't say it's 100%. Probably. You'll notice that he said uh, uh, Stephen Hawking remarked that in an infinite universe, they have to be out there. Well, indeed, in an infinite universe, anything that could happen will have happened and an infinite number of times. And this conversation will be uh, replicated out there, too. But that's not terribly germane if you can't look at all of an infinite universe. And you can't. The speed of light um, you know, just constrains what you can do. Is there intelligence within our purview? Is it you know, close enough that we can find it? I think yes, but what I think is not so important as an uh, you know, uh, experimental result that actually proved it was true. So what sort of difference do you think a project like Breakthrough Listen can make compared to what, what SETI has been doing since it, since it was set up? Like, when was it set up? What, the 1960s sometime? Well, the first modern SETI experiment was indeed in 1960. That was Frank Drake's Project Ozma using an antenna in West Virginia. The SETI Institute 
has been around since 1984. And for a while, it was a NASA-funded program. That hasn't been true uh, for the last, what, two dozen years, actually. And that means that you're kind of constrained by funding because all the funding for the SETI research at this organization, the SETI Institute, is privately funded. People send, you know, their personal checks in. And that limits what you can do. Uh, In the case of Breakthrough, that is funded by the Russian billionaire Yuri Milner, and they have adequate funds to do things like renting time on the Parkes telescope in Australia and using it uh, and and also building new equipment, which, you know, money allows you to do. What you can do with money is not guarantee that you're going to find E.T., but you can speed up the search. It's like uh, giving Captain Cook a steamship instead of a sailing vessel. And is this the only approach to look for effectively look for radio waves in, it, in some form? Or, I mean, could we be looking for something else? Is that is that how aliens will communicate? Well, uh, I get plenty of emails from people who who doubt that <laughs> who doubt that's true. I mean, they'll say, "Oh, radio, that's kind of old school, isn't it?" I mean, really. Uh, we are building some equipment to sort of speed up the search in the optical where you look for flashing laser beams. And you might say, well, you know, what's the advantage? I mean, they don't go any faster than radio waves. But, of course, you can send more information on a light beam than you can on a radio wave. So if they're trying to send us their collected works, all their rock and roll or whatever they're trying to send into space, maybe light is the way to do it. Uh, it's been about radio partly for historic reasons. But the other thing to think about is this. We've only been broadcasting into space since the Second World War, really, the invention of radar, uh, FM radio, television. Those are signals that go out into space. So if any aliens are farther than about, you know, 70 light years away, they don't know we're here. So why would they relentlessly target us with their radio signals? It doesn't make sense. They don't know that we're here. They might know that there's life on Earth because of the, you know, the oxygen, the atmosphere and all that. But they're not going to send all these messages to our lettuce, right? So... uh, I think that, you know, just sending a ping, a a thousandth of a second laser flash toward Earth every two weeks might be a strategy they'd use just to find out if anybody ever gets back to them. And there's been a lot of interest in these fast radio bursts, which are almost like that, these sort of blasts of energy. Uh, across the across the cosmos, and I mean, there's always a certain group of people who always jump to the conclusion that it's going to be space aliens. But you know, there's no proof that they're not space aliens. The, these these blasts of, of, of energy. Yes, that's true. But I think your point is well taken. Every time we find something new in the heavens, and after all, that's the job description for astronomers, so you shouldn't be surprised that they're finding new things. But whether it was quasars, pulsars, fast radio bursts, whatever. Uh, there's always a group of people who will say, you know, it's aliens trying to get in touch. Now, one thing we know about fast radio bursts is that at least some of them come from very, very, very far away. I mean, they're from galaxies that are billions of light years away. Why they would want to get in touch is a little bit problematic, if you ask me. But all I can say is that history is not on the side of this being alien activity. In the past, we've always found that these new things, these strange things were not aliens. They were nature. Uh, why not transmit rather than try just to receive something? Why not send signals out? Because no one's really doing that. And in fact, Stephen Hawking has talked about the dangers of doing that. He has. And that's a, you know, kind of a persuasive argument among some quarters that you don't know what's out there. We don't know anything about the temperament of the aliens, if there are any. And just letting them know, hey, we're here on Earth, you know, that might just incite them to send their interstellar battle wagons our way and incinerate the planet, which would ruin my day. But, you know, 
to begin with, I find it hard to believe that they would spend the money to do that. But beyond that, beyond that, I, I think there's no point in worrying about that danger because any society that could do that has to be way beyond ours. They've got bigger antennas than we do. They're picking up the television and uh, in the radar anyhow. So that, that horse has left the barn, right? We've already signaled our presence into space. I don't worry about that. But the real problem with transmitting first and listening for answers is that the nearest aliens might be a couple of hundred light years away, right? So you send out a signal, and then you sit back, fold your arms, hope that you continue to get funded, and wait for an answer that might be a thousand years and coming back. Now, all this search, you talked about this sort of the people who want to believe. Um, but there's also, you know, every time there's a this Earth 2.0 or another place that we could you know, talk about or we could move to, or, you know, that's going to be tricky in itself. Is there almost a sort of this this element of people who just want to go somewhere else or want the aliens to come here and rescue us from the mess we've made of the Earth? Uh, I think that there is an element of that. I mean, why are we so interested in aliens? I honestly think that that just dates to the wiring up of our DNA as a species, you know, 100,000, 150,000 years ago. You're living on the savanna. It's important to pay attention to anything with big teeth, right? So we're interested in critters with big teeth. All you have to do is tune in TV shows about animals, and they're very seldom about, you know, squirrels or anything like that. It's always something with big teeth. Uh, but the other thing we're interested in is there's somebody, you know, behind those trees over there. Is there another group of, you know, potential uh, competitors, right? Or maybe they're just going to take the women or they're just going to take the land and we'll all starve. I mean, there's survival value in being interested in other comparable species. So I think that that's where our interest in aliens derives. Well, in a moment, we'll be talking about uh, life at the other end of the scale as Cassini begins its final orbits around Saturn. What are the chances of finding life on Enceladus? This is the Space Boffins podcast, and we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do interact with us on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we'll try to get our act together with Instagram as well. We have an account, we just haven't really done anything with it yet. On our Facebook page right now, you'll find links to our interview with Jim Lovell, a radio programme on the Challenger disaster, and details of the new Dan Dare audio adventures. Meanwhile, at Saturn... After 20 years in space, NASA's Cassini spacecraft is running out of fuel. And so, to protect moons of Saturn that could have conditions suitable for life, a spectacular end has been planned for this long-lived traveller from Earth. The Cassini probe has begun its final orbits, now passing between Saturn and the rings. NASA's calling this end phase of the mission the grand finale. In September, the spacecraft will plunge into the planet's atmosphere. Recently, NASA announced that with its geysers of water spewing into space, Saturn's moon, Enceladus, seems to have the conditions for life. I asked the leader of the imaging team, Carolyn Porco, what the thinking was behind bringing the mission to an end in such a dramatic fashion. We decided that the best thing we could do at the end of the Cassini mission is, you know, take a chance, right? And we've been so successful. Everything since June 30th of 2008 on Cassini has been gravy. That was our nominal mission. And we've just gotten mission extension after extension because we've just been so successful. And so we thought, let's take a chance and do something daring. Go into uncharted regions around Saturn that would put us in a position to make measurements that you can't make when you're farther away. So we decided to put the spacecraft on orbits that at first 
take you over the pole and right outside the edge of the rings. Uh, and that would allow us to really uh, look closely at the rings again, like we had done after the Saturn orbit insertion 13 years earlier, get very high resolution, and now look at things that we had discovered since we got into orbit and go back and look again. Uh, and that has been phenomenally successful. I mean, just the images of the rings we've gotten uh, have been mind-blowing. And then after that set of orbits, we decided that we'd just make an alteration and go inside the rings between the upper clouds of Saturn and the innermost part of the D-ring, which is the innermost ring. I mean, that, that's just phenomenal to, to do that, isn't it? To, you know, to just to, to take that, that risk. Well, this is this is what I mean when I say on on Cassini what risk. Well, this is this is what I mean when I say on on Cassini what what we've set we've set the template for how we go about how humankind should go about exploring a major planetary system like Saturn's because we've done so many things like this. It's just been an example of just uh, how technologically skillful we have become in the exploration of the solar system. And this was one of those cases where we knew the gravity field of Saturn well enough that we could, on our last Titan flyby, you know, just send it by Titan in a way that it would alter its trajectory enough to now go from orbiting or plunging through the ring plane outside the rings, and now we're going to go inside the rings. And of course, that was daring because we didn't know if we were going to collide with something or not. Uh, we didn't, which was good. Uh, and what we're going to be looking for now is we're going to be measuring the gravity field of Saturn at a much finer level of detail than we could have in the larger orbits. Now we're up close. We can see the higher moments, is how we say it in scientific parlance, of the gravity field. We're going to measure the rotation rate of Saturn. That's been a big, uh, this big question that still remains. How internally, deep inside, how quickly is it rotating? And then finally, on the way into Saturn, the instruments that scoop up material and measure composition will be doing their thing. And so it's like having a probe. You know, it's like having carried along a probe to Saturn, except it'll be the whole entire spacecraft itself. And it will burn up in the atmosphere and end up part of Saturn. And I suppose collecting information on the speed of rotation, on the gravity, on the size of the rings, this is all a part of a jigsaw to put together because how the whole Saturn system works. And you can tell more as a result of that about the moons, about possibilities of life on Enceladus or on, on Titan. Over these 13 years, we have built an enormous edifice of knowledge. And it often starts with, you know, the imaging team taking an image of something and discovering, oh, look, there's a, a lake, something that looks like a lake feature on the south pole of Titan. And then other instruments get into the act and they observe it the next chance they get. And, uh, and they find out something that requires maybe another instrument to get into the act. And so we have, because Cassini has been so well equipped with instrumentation, the most sophisticated suite of instruments ever taken into the outer solar system is bolted onto Cassini. And we have just applied, you know, everything we could to understanding all these various things that we have found there. So, it, you know, it's like 
We and the spacecraft together have been authors of a tome of, of information and a story that humankind will be reading for decades, maybe even centuries to come. Carolyn Porco, who leads Cassini's imaging team and one of the key people behind the mission. I've also been speaking to NASA planetary scientist and astrobiologist Chris McKay. He's based just down the road here at NASA Ames, and he's working on a plan for a new mission to Enceladus. I asked him how excited we should be about the idea of life on the watery moon. From an astrobiology point of view, this is the most interesting story. Enceladus has everything needed for life. It has liquid water, a large ocean liquid water, suitable liquid water. It has organic material, carbon. It has biologically available nitrogen, and it has an energy source suitable for microorganisms. And samples are in space coming out of the plume. This is it. This should be our focus. We should be flying through that plume searching for life. And we have a mission designed to do that a mission that will fly low and slow through the plume, collect a huge sample because the signal of life may be faint, and search on that signal for evidence of life, search for amino acids, search for lipids, search for the distinctive handedness that biomolecules have, then fly back a couple months later, do it again, a few months later, do it again, and do it 10 times, searching for life. And if it finds a life signal, move up in the plume to where we don't expect the life signal and try to get a negative control. Try to do the analysis with such scientific rigor that when we go to publish the result, the community accepts it. Because that is a problem, isn't it, that astrobiology has, that you kind of want to find life. Is there a a bias there straight away? You're always looking for signs of life rather than being totally objective. Right. I, I think... It's intrinsic to the search for life. You want the answer to be yes. I want the answer to be yes. And I've seen how that can generate what professionals call confirmation bias. You see what you want to see and you disregard the rest. I think there's a song about that, actually. And this is really a problem. And I've seen it over and over again, papers published, making some extraordinary claim, life on Mars, arsenic-baked life in Mono Lake or whatever – And it's based on a very selective and narrow interpretation of the data that doesn't stand up to scrutiny when the broader community goes at it. Uh, And so I think the lesson there is we have to keep on our scientific hat while we search for something we really want to find there. We have to be doubly careful. And I think for searching for life in Enceladus, that means we we have to design the mission in a way that's methodologically rigorous. That means we have to design duplication in the instruments so that one instrument failure doesn't skew our results so that we have backup. We have to design the search so that we're searching for multiple lines of evidence in a redundant and complementary way. And we have to design the mission so that we have some way to get a negative control to show that if we see a yes here, we can go somewhere we expect there to be a no, and we do see a no. If we see yes everywhere, we know something's screwy, right? So... We've tried to do that in our mission design, and I think we've succeeded. But this is, this is required. And it goes back to that old saying, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And in my mind, there is no more extraordinary claim than we have found life on another world and that that life may be a different origin of life than life on Earth, a second genesis. That is extraordinary. That, to me, would be an answer to a most fundamental question, are we alone? And we, if we can answer that yes, no, rather, no, that we're not alone, 
that n is at least two, that the number of life forms in this universe is at least two, I can I can retire and rest peacefully because I know that two is not the answer. It's infinity. It's either one or infinity. We know it's at least one. If we can get it to two, I'm happy because then somebody else can do three, four, five, six, all the way up to infinity. But knowing that it's at least two to me says it's it's many, many, many infinite lives, life forms all over the universe, and this is a wonderful place for an astrobiologist. And does this mean we should shift our attention away from Mars? Are we become obsessed with this whole life on Mars question? I, I was certainly obsessed with life on Mars for years, and now it's in my rearview mirror. But, but that doesn't mean I think we should avoid Mars. I, I'm, I'm too busy on Enceladus to spend much time on Mars. But Mars is still an interesting world. It's the world where humans are going to go. And humans are going to be part of the search for life. And Mars has certainly a more complex and rich biological history, if it has one, than Enceladus does. So Mars is still an important target. But in the near term, for the few years I have left to me, my energy is all on Enceladus. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? It's damn exciting. There it is, right there. It, it's almost like Enceladus looked at Mars and said, I've got to get these humans' attention. How am I going to do it? Well, I'll just spill my guts into space, and they're bound to notice it. And notice it, we did. And so uh, I'm abandoning that first love and going after this other one who has shown me everything that I wanted to see, seduction at the highest level. NASA planetary scientist Chris McKay. And um, since you ask, it's Simon Garfunkel, the boxer. Was that lyric? Oh, I didn't ask, but uh, he did. Yeah, it's Simon Garfunkel, the boxer. Uh, Seth Sostak still with me here at SETI. Are you similarly, similarly seduced by Enceladus? Well, I am. Look, he's looking for pond scum in space. And uh, indeed, it sounds like Enceladus is the best bet. It also has the advantage that uh, Chris alluded to there, that if you find life on Enceladus, in some ways, it's a little better than finding life on Mars. Because if you find life on Mars, there is the possibility that that life either infected the Earth or possibly the Earth infected Mars. So maybe you're just finding, you know, two examples of the same sort of life. Whereas if you find life on Enceladus, that was not an infection from Earth. And uh, Enceladus's life didn't infect our planet. So it's really a second genesis. So that, that he's right. That, that would show, you know, biology, it's just a cosmic infection. It's not a miracle. And that would help you and the, the argument for putting more effort into looking for intelligent life. Because if, if, there is, if there is life, if there are multiple places for life, even unlikely places in the solar system, it, it's more chances everywhere. Indeed, because it would show right away that life can cook up even in uh, environments that personally I wouldn't want to live in. But it shows that biology is very easy to get started, and consequently it is probably all over the place. And if you have lots of instances of biology, it seems to me completely reasonable to assume that in some cases it's become intelligent enough to build a radio transmitter or a big laser, and we might hear from those guys. Is that necessarily the case? I mean, can all the coincidences that led to us led to us to be in this situation now where we're sitting in front of microphones in a studio surrounded by electronics, computers, in Silicon Valley, that we can send, you can receive signals from space. Is that necessarily going to happen? No, it's not. No, and it's one of the most controversial aspects of the whole SETI enterprise because you will find evolutionary biologists who will say, okay, great, ponds come on Enceladus. I'm willing to believe that there's bacterial life all over the, the universe. 
But what are the chances it's going to eventually evolve to something that can build a radio transmitter, which is what we require? And, you know, they'll point out to, indeed, the contingency in that happening. Uh, if the rock that wiped out the dinos had arrived, you know, five hours earlier, we wouldn't be sitting here. There'd be dinos maybe sitting here, but <laughs> but maybe just chewing on the grass or one another and, and, and not having a conversation. So uh, their question would be, you know, life does not guarantee intelligence. And you could take that one step farther and say that, well, it, even if you have intelligent life, there's been intelligent life in the form of Homo sapiens, anyhow, for 200,000 years on Earth. And they didn't build any transmitters until the last 100 years. So where does that leave you? Well, that leaves you with this question that uh, maybe what you're looking for is a winning lottery ticket uh, that's extraordinarily improbable. But on the other hand, if you can find that life is all over the place, then there are a lot of tickets out there that you can check to see if any of them is a winner. So I remain uh, sanguine. I remain optimistic. But on the other hand, that's part of my job. Is there a point you, you give up or is there a point where actually it's getting more and more exciting because we're place, looking at places like, like Enceladus and we're actually going out there and, and finding evidence of life? I don't think you ever give up. I don't think I would give up. People ask me this. They say, all right, at what point do you sort of you know, throw in the towel and say, all right, the aliens are simply not out there. We've been, bit, we've been at this for a long time. We have been at it for a long time already, more than a half century, right? But the number of star systems that have been looked at is so small that I don't think that's very significant. But at some point, because of improvements in technology, maybe by the mid part of this century, if you've looked at, you know, several million star systems, and after that you could actually go for billions of star systems and you still don't find anything. I wouldn't say that the aliens aren't out there. I would say that you're doing the wrong experiment. Seth Shostak, uh, SETI's chief astronomer. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for lending us your studio oh, as anytime, well. Oh, anytime, Richard. It's, uh, I hope it's commodious enough. It's lovely. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, Space Boffins is a Boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. And, of course, you can reach us on Facebook and Twitter. So we'll be back next time from California. Thanks for listening.